Mark chapter 1 is where we are at this morning. Let's bow together in prayer and we'll begin this study in Mark. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, give you praise for being able to beat this way, to come together, to, to love you, to uh, try to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, to become more like him, to be more faithful witnesses to him in the world around us, for Lord, our world desperately needs Jesus. Help us to be those who bring the light to the darkness around us. Help us to those who, like Mark portrays Jesus, was always active serving you. Thank you for the salvation that you give us by simply putting our faith in your son and his finished work at Calvary. Thank you that we can pass from death to life. That you give us eternal life, life with you forever. Abundant living now. Now, Lord, we need your help. We need your wisdom. We need your grace. Help us to have that as we study your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I shared with you uh, once before, some months ago, uh, about one of the uh, most awe-inspiring moments of my life. And I thought of it again in conjunction with uh, starting this study in the book of Mark. Uh, because Mark writes out of adoration for Jesus. There, uh, you can just see as we go through page by page, paragraph by paragraph, verse by verse of this book, that Mark has great admiration for Jesus. And it took me back as I thought about that and his admiration and the way he wrote. It took me back to right after I finished college, I had the opportunity to go on one of those whirlwind European trips, you know, five cities, five countries in eight days, you know, never know where you're at, really. Uh, and it was, uh, it was a tremendous time, first time I had been overseas in my life, and uh, I enjoyed it tremendously, but the moment that stands out of all that time, and all of the great things that I saw, uh, Buckingham Palace and uh, so on and so forth, but the one thing that stands out to me is when our group went to see the Louvre in Paris. And wow, it was like the books that I had read, the magazines I had seen, the uh, textbooks I had used jumped right off the page and were right there in front of me. I can't, I can't believe it. I can still remember as I walked through the Louvre, there was winged victory right in front of me. The real thing that I had only seen in pictures. There was Venus de Milo, again, that I had only seen in pictures. And it's almost like every step I took, uh, I was just in awe. But the thing that awed me more than anything else was when I got to the portrait, the Mona Lisa, by da Vinci. 
And I don't know why, but that was uh, an astounding moment to me, that there I was standing just feet away from one of the most famous paintings in all of history. And uh, I, there was such a sense of awe about it that I think I, I shared with you a couple of months ago that I couldn't even, and, they, and we were allowed to take pictures because the Mona Lisa was behind glass, and uh, I just couldn't. Today I could kick myself because I didn't, but I just couldn't take a picture. I, it, it was just a, a moment, it was such a moment of awe. I think that that's what the Gospel of Mark is to Mark. He writes out of adoration for Jesus. He, he writes of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. The uniqueness of Jesus Christ, the God-man. Jesus, which means Yahweh is salvation, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Joshua. Christ, which is the anointed one, Christos in Greek, Mashiach in Hebrew. The anointed one God sent. Son of God, as he is called. And we see all those terms right here in verse 1 as we begin the Gospel of Mark, where we read in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark calls him the Son of God, a reference to his deity. Jesus is both human and divine. Jesus is God incarnate. As we'll get into it next week, Mark lists three events that show who Jesus is. John the Baptist's ministry, Jesus' baptism, and Jesus' temptation. More than preparatory for his gospel, they were necessary so that we might understand Jesus and we might understand his life vision. These events authenticate who he is and what he came to do, he was the unique God-man. This is the one who would do something about sin. It required more than a good man. It required the God-man. And that's who Mark introduces us to. It required more than a good man. It required the God-man. Jesus had to be man so that he could die. He had to be God so that his death would mean something. And so that's where Mark begins. That's where he starts to help us to understand who this person, Jesus Christ, is as he shares his gospel. One writer said that Mark is the briefest and in some ways the most attractive of the four Gospels. Its sparse, unpretentious prose provides uniquely vivid images of Jesus of a man, as a man of action. His use of the present tense draws us into the scenes he sketches and helps us see events as the writer does as an eyewitness. But interestingly enough, Mark wasn't an eyewitness to all that he records. He was an eyewitness to some, But we realize as we look through the Gospel of Mark and as we look through church history that Mark recorded Peter's eyewitness 
remembrances. So Mark is giving us an eyewitness account, but the eyewitness account is not his own. The eyewitness account is that of Peter. As the writer said, his use of the present tense draws us into the scenes he sketches, helps us see the event as a writer does, as an eyewitness. Many believe this gospel was written to appeal to the Roman mind, shaped to emphasize Christ's strenuous life and manly characteristics. You know, it bothers me that Jesus is so often portrayed as a feminine kind of man. He was the most manly man. He was the most manly man. And Mark tries to communicate those manly characteristics. The writer goes on to say he reminds us over and over again that gentle Jesus was no weakling, but was a man of courage, a man of commitment, a man of complete and active dedication to carrying out his mission here on earth. This is the Jesus Mark wants his first century readers and us to know. Jesus, the Son of God, yet a powerful, vigorous, and totally admirable man among men. Mark concentrates on the acts of Jesus, the things that Jesus did, rather than concentrating, as the other gospel writers do, on the teachings of Jesus Christ. Mark concentrates on the things that Jesus did. And the reason he does that is so he may prompt you and me to be about the Father's business, that he may prompt you and me to be actively serving God as Jesus portrayed all throughout his life. And that's, what, that's why I like Mark. That's why I like Mark. He concentrates on the things Jesus did and what we can learn from those things. Well, the writer said, Jesus wants us to get this picture of a powerful, vigorous, and totally admirable man among men. Well, who was Mark? That's a good question. We should always ask that when we begin a study of the Word of God, we should, uh, of a book of the, of the Word of God. We should ask the question, who is the author? Well, uh, external and some internal evidence points to Mark, or also called John Mark, as the author of this book. He was the son of a well-to-do lady of Jerusalem whose name was Mary, and her house was a meeting place for the early church. You remember from Acts chapter 12 where Peter was put in prison and the church gathered where? Mary's house. The church gathered in Mary's house to pray for Peter. One of my favorite passages of Scripture. They're gathered there praying for Peter to be released and a knock comes to the door and the servant goes to answer the door and it's Peter, let me in. It's Peter, let me in. And she lets him on the outside and runs in and says, it's Peter. They say it can't be Peter. He's in prison. We're praying for him right now. <laughs> well, that was Mark's mother's 
house where the church was meeting. It seemed to be a regular meeting place of the early church, and we see that throughout the book of Acts. Mark was also the nephew of Barnabas. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And he was the nephew of of, uh, Barnabas, and he accompanied Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch from Jerusalem when they had the Jerusalem council, and uh, Mark accompanied them. And not only that, he accompanied them on the first missionary journey. We read about him in Acts 12.25, Acts 13.13, Acts 16. But something happened on that first missionary journey. Do you remember what it was? Anybody remember what happened on that first missionary journey? Mark left. Mark abandoned them. We don't know whether it was fear of of the uh, things that were happening to them, the way they were being treated, the opposition to the gospel, the opposition to Paul and to Barnabas, and indeed to Mark himself. We don't know why he left. It may have been fear. It may have been that he didn't like the leadership of Paul. It may be that he didn't care for the teaching of the grace of God. We don't know why Mark abandoned them, but we know that he did. When it came time to revisit the churches established on the first missionary journey, Barnabas son of encouragement, as you might imagine, what did he do? He said to Paul, I want to bring Mark along. Do you remember what Paul said? No way, Jose. Paul said, no. There's no way we're bringing Mark along. Remember what he did. He abandoned us on the first trip, and there's no way I'm going to have him on the second trip. And it led to such a sharp disagreement. Those are the words of the Scripture. It led to such a sharp disagreement that Paul and Barnabas split up. And Paul took Silas and he went on the second missionary journey and Barnabas took his cousin Mark and went on their own missionary journey. But it led to a split between Paul and Barnabas. Now, it's interesting, you ask yourself, well, how do you come back from that? How does Mark come back to usefulness for God? Mark failed in a spectacular way. Mark abandoned them on the first missionary journey. Mark rejected serving God, rejected his duty. How do you come back from that? How do you come back from from failure? How do you come to the place where you're useful to God again? Mark is a great study in that because As we see later, Paul and Mark were reconciled. Paul and Barnabas were reconciled. We see Paul asking in 2 Timothy to have Mark come to him and bring his scrolls because Mark is useful to him. We see in the book of Philippians that Paul and Mark are together when Paul is in prison. 
we see again a reconciliation between Paul and Mark, between Paul and Barnabas. How do you come back from such a failure? How do you come back from such a rejection of the will of God? One writer said Mark's biography proves that one failure in life does not mean the end of usefulness. I I like that. One failure in life doesn't mean the end of usefulness. You know, we all fail in many ways. Sometimes we fail like Mark spectacularly. Sometimes it's just a, a small fail. But the point is that God can restore us and God can use us. Mark might have thought it's all over for me. It's all over for me. I can't be useful to God any longer. I can't be useful to the missionary teams any longer. He may have thought it was all over for him, and yet we find later he is reconciled to Paul. He is ministering side by side, shoulder to shoulder with Paul. I think it's something we need to remember As the writer said, Mark's biography proves that one failure in life does not mean the end of usefulness. Harry Foster, in his book Daily Thoughts on Bible Characters, said Mark himself had many spiritual ups and downs before he was prepared to accept the full will of God for his own life. I think that may be one of the reasons, other than the the prose and the, the active way that Mark writes, the way he portrays what Jesus did, uh, I think that the fact that he is a good example to me and to all of us that failure doesn't have to be fatal. Failure doesn't have to be fatal. Isn't that the way God trains us through disappointment? Through failure, he, he does it all throughout the Scripture. You, you can't read many pages of Scripture before you realize that God uses disappointment, God uses failure to grow us, to grow us into the men and women that He wants us to be. Uh, let me give you a couple of, of quick examples of that. Joseph was the favored son of Jacob so favored that his brothers hated him. Do you remember what they did? They were going to kill him, but what did they do instead? Sold him into slavery. Sold him into slavery. Boy, what a takedown from Joseph sharing the dreams that he had where his father and mother and brothers were all kneeling down before him to being in chains. You talk about a fail. Disappointment. He's sold into slavery and he's sold to Potiphar and he becomes the chief steward of Potiphar's house because everything that he did, he did well. And then you know what happened. At the height of his position in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife, lies about him and lies about him and he finds himself where 
in prison. He finds himself in prison. Surely, at some point in all of this disappointment, he thought to himself, this is the end of the line. I don't know what those dreams were about, but they're not happening. What dreams do you have or have you had? What failure in your life and my life have you thought made those dreams impossible? What disappointment? Remember Mark, remember Joseph. From prison, he rises to the second highest authority in all of Egypt. How about another example? How about Moses? Moses, who had to be abandoned to the bulrushes because of the edict to kill Hebrew boys, found by Pharaoh's daughter, raised in Pharaoh's house. Not only did Pharaoh mean him for great things, but God meant him for great things. But you know what happened. He sees an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew and he kills the Egyptian. Later, two Hebrews are fighting and he tells them, please stop, you're brothers. What are you doing battling? What are you doing fighting? And the one said to him, what, are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? He knew he was found out. He immediately became a stench to Pharaoh. And he found himself on the backside of the desert for 40 years listening to Bah, Bah. That's, that's a really bad sheep, okay? I agree. Next time I'll practice more. Listening to sheep for 40 years. Little did he know during that time. Think about Think about the disappointment. Think about the failure on his part. Think about how he's thinking, I thought God was going to use me. I thought God put me in this position so that I could lead my people out. And instead, here I am in the desert listening to sheep for 40 years. Boy, little did he know what it would be like leading the sheep of Israel for another 40 years, and how that time in the desert prepared him for that. God used that. You see, because God uses failure and He uses disappointment. So what disappointment do you have? What failure? God uses that. God uses that. How about another example? How about 1 Samuel Hannah, in the first couple of chapters, she's bitterly disappointed because she's unable to give her husband Elkanah a child. I love, this is just an aside, but I, I love, and sometime, not in the next few minutes, but I love reading those first couple chapters of Samuel because she is bitterly disappointed at not having a child and her husband's only words of comfort to her is, you got me. Don't you love that? I mean, what more do you want? You got me. <laughs> that's, that's great to me. But at any rate, she's bitterly disappointed. 
And God allows her to go through that disappointment, allows her to go through what she feels is failure in her life before he brings to fruition what she desired. You see, he'll do that. He'll do that to me. He'll do that to you. He'll let us be disappointed. He'll let us fail so that he can prepare us for what he has for us to do. Let me give you one more illustration from the book of Ruth. That's Naomi. Anybody remember what Naomi's name means? Don't be afraid. It means pleasant. Naomi means pleasant. And when we open the book, Naomi is pleasant. She's married to Elimelech. Things are going great. She has two sons, Malon and Kilion. And her name means pleasant or lovely. But a famine comes to Israel. And Elimelech says, we got to go to Moab. We've got to go wherever we can find food. And when they're in Moab, what happens to Elimelech? He dies. What happens to Malon and Kilion? They die as well. So she is in a foreign place with daughters-in-law, her husband dead, her sons dead. Her daughter-in-laws are Orpah and Ruth. Orpah chooses to stay behind when Naomi decides to go back to Israel, but Ruth would not leave her. My people, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God, Ruth said. But Naomi was so disappointed. Naomi so felt the failure of what had happened in her life that she, when she got back to Israel and they said, oh, look, it's pleasant. Look, lovely is back home. She said, don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara, which means what? Bitter. The disappointment had caused her to be bitter about life, about everything. Little did she know that through Ruth, who meets Boaz, who is a kinsman redeemer, that her life was going to change because God had allowed her disappointment and allowed her failure because he was preparing her for great things. And he often does that to you and to me to prepare us for great things so that the book of Ruth ends up with David's grandfather in Naomi's lap. Isn't that something? How good God is. You say, well, okay, that's, that's really great. Those are, those are uh, Bible stories. Does God still use disappointment? Does God still use failure? Let me share two things with you. One comes from the life of Coach Tony Dungy. I told you I've been rereading this year. His devotional book is called The One Year Uncommon Life Daily Challenge. Uh, I'm glad I pulled it out again this year to begin reading with my Bible reading every day because it is so good. 
And he shares this. He said, one of the things that caused me some reservations when deciding whether to write Quiet Strength, Quiet Strength was his autobiography. He said, one of the things that caused me reservations when deciding whether to write Quiet Strength was that I wasn't sure anything that I had done was worthy of mention. What parts of my life would interest readers? But then when Nathan and I began the process of writing the book, I realized that it wasn't just the joys that might be interesting for them to read about, but also some of the disappointments and heartaches and how I tried to walk on. What I went through might be a blessing and a comfort for others who have experienced similar trials. In fact, he says, we opened the book detailing a terrifically low point in my life, being fired by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. It was a simple decision to start there. We knew that every, every reader could relate to a time when personal dreams have been dashed. His dreams were dashed. His dreams of being a Super Bowl winning coach were dashed. His, his dreams of using his position as an NFL coach for ministry's sake seemed dashed to him at that moment. God allowed failure in his life and God allowed disappointment. In fact, he allowed many disappointments in Tony Dungy's life. But he was preparing Tony Dudgy for better things. So it's not just Bible characters. Let me share one more. I started reading a book recently called Leadership Not by the Numbers by David Green. Who knows who David Green is? I didn't either. He's the founder of Hobby Lobby. He is the founder of Hobby Lobby. And uh, he shares some interesting things. I'm just going to share one thing with you. He said, Hobby Lobby saw steady, steady growth from the late 1970s to the mid-1980s. We opened more stores and earned tens of millions in annual sales. The future looked fantastic. I even began to suspect that I might be a genius. And then came 1985. This time, God didn't speak to me as I sat in an airplane, by an airplane win window. I didn't hear from him while flying 30,000 feet above the ground. On this occasion, I heard from him while huddled under my big mahogany desk with my office door closed, desperately praying. I left my phone unanswered because I already knew the callers, creditors demanding we pay bills we couldn't pay. The underside of my desk became my refuge. Now, there's more to it, but I don't have time to share you everything except the conclusion. He said this, under my desk, I turned to the only place I knew to go. I turned to God. I felt him saying to my heart, if you're so big, I'm going to let you have it by yourself. Disappointment. Failure. He writes, I was a proud man. I had grown cocky from all my success. I imagined that I had the Midas touch, that I had become an Einstein of business. Ever since I worked retail in high school, I had stampeded through the ranks, 
becoming the youngest store manager, the youngest district manager, the first in charge of a prototype store. Finally, I started my own company every year from 1972 to 1985. Hobby Lobby turned a profit. I assumed the gravy train would last forever. And then he says this, and this is the point I'm trying to make through these biblical examples and these everyday examples from people we know or know about. He said this, God must destroy our arrogant pride if he is to bless the work of our hands. The Lord loves to bless humility, not smug self-confidence. It's hard to maintain a smug self-confidence when you're crouching under your desk, hiding from creditors and pleading for God to help you out of the mess you've created for yourself. Today I can say I'm glad for those dark days. I needed to have my bubble burst. No one likes those days when they're going through them. No one likes days of disappointment. No one likes to go through failure. But God so often uses that to build our lives and to prepare us for his good things. What failure have you experienced? What disappointment? And if you haven't yet experienced failure or disappointment, I can only say praise God and wait. It's coming. It's coming. But we have a big God who uses disappointment and uses failure to grow us in the image of his son. Well, that's Mark. A couple of more things about the background of Mark. Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. It begins and ends abruptly. Interestingly enough, chapter 1, verse 1, has no verb in it. That's how, that's how Mark wants to get right to it. No verb at all. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he's almost breathless as he writes about this person that he loves so much. No, so he begins and ends abruptly. There are no birth narratives as Matthew and Luke. He begins with Jesus' baptism. After explaining how unique a person Jesus is, he begins with Jesus' baptism, moves on, gives one line to his temptation by Satan in the desert. Another thing about the book of Mark is it's fast-paced. The emphasis is on action. He uses a connector word in Greek, which means immediately or at once. It's the word euthus in Greek. It's used 42 times in the book of Mark. Because you see, he's a man of action and he's showing Jesus as a man of action. So all of, we see him over and over again and say, at once Jesus did this. At once Jesus did this. Immediately the disciples left here and went there. Immediately, at once, because 
The emphasis is on action in the book. Chapter 1 and verse 12 is an example of what I'm talking about. Chapter 1 and verse 12 we read, At once the Spirit sent him into the desert. All throughout the book you see immediately, at once. It's fast-paced. That's another reason I personally like the book of Mark so much. Mark's emphasis is on the speaking and acting Jesus. As one writer said, his account is vital, active, and Christian, and Christ, excuse me, and Christ-centered. Vital, active, and Christ-centered. The Daily Walk Bible writer says this, uh, the writer of the devotional thoughts in the Bible, in the Daily Walk Bible. Mark captures the ministry of Jesus but focuses more on what Jesus does than on what he says. Focus, another writer said, the focus on Jesus' deeds, the focus is on Jesus' deeds rather than his teaching. Because Mark wants to give you and me an example of how we ought to be living. He wants to give you and me an example of how we ought to be serving God. He wants to give you and me an example of how we can serve God, even though opposition is fierce. And folks, we're facing fierce opposition today. Mark should be our book. There's fierce op opposition to the truth of the Word of God. There's fierce opposition today to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is fierce opposition. And you and I should be encouraged by the way Jesus took on the opposition. By the way Jesus ministered, served. Another writer said that of the 70 parables the gospel writers recorded, only 18 are contained in Mark. And many are only one sentence in length. However, of Jesus' 35 recorded miracles, Mark gives an account of more than half. In other words, the emphasis, the focus is on Jesus' deeds rather than on his teaching. And so I, I think that we are going to enjoy the fast pace of this book. Although we're not going to go too fast, we're going to take it apart Verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter, the way we do all of the scripture that we teach. Well, how does Mark compare to the other Gospels? Matthew is about the prophesied king, Jesus' prophet and priest and king, and Matthew connects Jesus to Abraham. Luke is about the perfect man and connects Jesus to Adam, presents him as the Savior of the whole world. John presents him as the divine Son, his origin in eternity past. Jesus, God incarnate in human flesh. Mark portrays Jesus as the obedient servant, the servant preacher. The outline for the book of Mark would be this. 
and there are many outlines, by the way. I can't tell you how many I've come across. I like simple, and this is simple. The servant's work, chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 13, verse 37. The servant's death, chapter 14, verse 1, to chapter 16, verse 20. That's a simple outline of the book of Mark. Well, it looks like all we've done is gotten through the background. It's okay with me. I hope it's okay with you. Let me close with this. Mark intends to challenge his readers to make a total and uncompromised decision to proclaim Christ to an otherwise lost and sinful world. Regardless of fearful and threatening circumstances and the pain of sharing Christ's cup of suffering, the theme of Mark's gospel is that Jesus' service and sacrifice provide the pattern of living for his followers. That's what we're going to focus on as we study through this book of Mark. How should we be living? How should we be living? Let's bow in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your servant, Mark. We thank you for his failures. We thank you for his disappointment. We thank you for the example he is to us of how you can take failure and take disappointment in our lives and turn it to our good and use us to proclaim the gospel of this unique Son of God, this unique God-man. We open our hearts and our minds and our voices and our ears to you, Lord. In Jesus' name.